I hadn't fixed the settings on this so the light wouldn't go off on my iPad, so I better do that. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, Bible study again this morning. The many, we, as you know, we're studying in Ephesians the many splendored wisdom of God from Ephesians 1 to 5. Let's sing the song we've been singing together. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship this holy name. The sun comes out, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your praise again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I worship your holy name. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for both your holy word and for your presence among us this morning by the Holy Spirit. And through him, Christ indeed himself is present. For the access through the unity we have in the body of Christ, through the access we have right into you, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, for all of this we give you thanks. Now, Lord, we ask that today, as we are here this morning, that the words of my mouth and anything we may discuss together and all the thoughts of our hearts and our responses may bring praise and glory and honor to your holy name. We open ourselves and leave ourselves before you, bowing before you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The many splendored wisdom of God. We've looked at the first three chapters of Ephesians. Um, and um, the, um, we, we've seen the introductory chapter. Paul gives a great thanksgiving for every spiritual blessing in Christ, for everything we, we enjoy as we participate in God's great plan, his many splendored wisdom for the redemption of the world. Then he prays for spiritual insight because he knows in the last part of chapter one that his hearers nor we will be able to grasp what he's saying except God through his Holy Spirit, enable us to, to understand the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, not an abstract power, not power for just this, that, or the other, but the power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, the power for new life and to live, to live godly. Then he moved from that to talking about the experience of the Ephesians in chapter two. They have experienced that power themselves by the power of Christ and, and through the Holy Spirit. They were dead, but they're alive and they were aliens. Now he's moving into what he really wants to talk about, the, the great plan of God for the reconciliation of the world. In the last part of chapter two, they were aliens. But now through Christ, they have been and, and the, uh, uh, being sealed by the Holy Spirit they have been made fellow citizens with the saints, partakers of the 
members of the household of God, built on the very foundation of the prophets and the apostles, become one with the people of God. They become and are, uh, and are being built into uh, a holy temple for the Lord, and they've been being built into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Chapter 3, then, we saw that he, he described, first he describes in the first part of chapter 3, now he describes God's great plan for the reconciliation of the world, bringing all things together in Christ. How he's taking the, the, the nations of the world, uniting them with his people from the Old Testament, and making one new reality in Christ, as Christ brings it all to final, um, final fulfillment and his own place in it um, as, as the apostle to the Gentiles. And then what we looked at yesterday, which are my seven favorite verses from Ephesians, really, yesterday, Paul's f- uh, prayer with which he concludes this first part, the first three chapters are all we might call theological. They're all telling us about the truth. He concludes that with this grand prayer um, not now just for spiritual insight, but that all he has been saying will be a reality in, in the hearts and lives of, of the of people, that they, will, that they will be strengthened from within by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will form Christ within as they put their faith in him, that they will, they will, they will fully experience all uh, that God has for him being rooted and built up in love in Christ, that they may be filled up and that we may be filled up into all the fullness of God. And yesterday we ended by saying, can, is that really, is that too good to be true? Can that really happen? And you'll remember the very next verses are to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And Paul ends with a note of praise, a grand statement of praise really, because he can't do anything else. To him be glory in the church of the redeemed people and in Christ Jesus through whom he has redeemed him to all the generations of the generations of the ages of the ages forever and ever. Amen. Then in chapter four, Paul begins the last three chapters. Paul then applies what he has said and he'll mix theology in here too. But in light of what I've said, then how shall we then live? And so as you will look at chapter four, um, let's see. I think, I don't have it all in one place here for me, but I think we should read, this might not be exactly as you have it on your translation, but we should read the first um, seven verses. I'll try. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthily of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance or forbearance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. We'll stop there with verse six. Um, In this, um, so therefore, everything that I've said before, all that I've said about the grand scheme of God and what he's done in your lives and, and, and my prayer for you. Therefore, in light of all of that, in light of all that I have said, in light of the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, in light of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places that he's given to you, in light of the, the, uh, uh, the, the calling um, the calling which his calling for you to be his people and his eternal calling, the inheritance that is yours, in light 
of all of these things, I, there, it's, this kind of therefore is like the therefore of Romans 12, you know, therefore I, be, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, therefore, in light of all this, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. I, a prisoner in the Lord. Now, Paul, of course, is, is literally in prison. And he's in prison for sake of his witness to the Lord Jesus. But there's another sense in which he feels himself obligated to preach the gospel. And he adds this in there. There's a note of pathos, a note of appeal. I'm the apostle of Christ, yes. But I'm also, my apostleship is marked as genuine because I'm suffering for it. I'm a prisoner for the sake of the Lord. And I'm, I'm committed to preach his word. For all that I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with you have been called. Now, I've talked about this word walk before, but I think it's really a crucial biblical image. Walking, it's not just living, but walking. We're to walk in the ways of the Lord according to the Old Testament. He's, he's, his word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. We're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And in the New Testament, we're to follow Christ as his disciples and walk in the spirit. It's that concrete way of everyday obedience to the Lord, walking, walking with him, going in the direction that he would have us to do, walk worthily of the calling to which he is called. It's concrete, it's directional, and it's not... Um, um, it's not a ramble. It's not just a wandering around. It's walking in obedience step by step to the Lord each day. Walk worthily of the calling with which he has been called. God initiated this thing, friends. This is not some special calling to ministry or <coughs> what have you. <coughs> this is the calling to all of these privileges that he's been talking about in the first, to be the people of God. The, uh, uh, the calling uh, that, that culminates in the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The calling to be his people. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And it all, of course, it reminds us that this is God's initiative. He has called us, given us these wonderful privileges, called us to eternal joy. He has initiated, he determined beforehand that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He determined us for sonship in Christ. And it's all according to the good pleasure of his will. He's done this in all wisdom and understanding. It's, it's not a Johnny-come-lately thing. He did it before for the foundation of the world. It's all to the praise of the glory of his grace. It includes redemption, the removal of sin, and an inheritance that is ours, and it is sealed to us by the blessed Holy Spirit, who is the earnest and foretaste and guarantee of that inheritance. We were made alive. We were dead and made alive. We were aliens and brought into the family of God. This is the loft. This is the calling. This is a, such a lofty calling. Calls for a very concrete, daily, purposeful walk that is in accord with it. Now, this sentence introduces these 16 verses, but it also introduces the whole last three chapters of Ephesians. The whole last three chapters really are about walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called in light of everything I've said to you. But it, it specifically introduces these, these um, verses. And in verse 17, we'll, we'll get the, the negative opposite. Because in verse 17, he's, he states that don't walk according to this world, according to your old desires, but walk in this new way. Now, it's, it's, um, it's important, these, these first verses here, 
now verses two through six, you have it on your outline. One body, the body, we're in one body, the bo- uh, joined by the bond of peace. But it's so crucial when Paul begins to talk about the practical things of the Christian life and how we live, where does he begin? He doesn't, he's going to get to, don't be involved in, in, in sensuality and all kinds of sin out there. He's going to get to that, but he begins by how we live in the body of Christ and how we treat one another. That's foundational, that's important, because it is one body. So, so what does he say? The character of this unity in one body is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance or putting up with one another in love, being diligent to keep, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is how we are to live together. This is the first thing. This is fundamental. This is foundational for our life together in Christ. We, Jesus, of course, is called meek and lowly in heart. Um, but, and, and humility, the words translated humility and gentleness are very closely related. Paul has tied them together on purpose. Um, but these are to characterize our life together. Humility is one who doesn't seek prominence does not try to put themselves ahead or above other people, does not insist on one's own rights or on any kind of special treatment or, con- or, or consideration. Gentleness is very closely related. It describes one so devoted to a cause, so devoted here to Christ and to, to the unity of his body and to the love of Christ, um, so devoted to a particular end that they don't take any note of any slight to themselves and care nothing or very little about the credit or who gets the credit for it so long as the end is achieved, so long as God is glorified, so long as the body of Christ is built up. Friends, this is, I've talked before about we're not, we don't die to self-interest, but to self-centeredness. Here it is. Humility and gentleness, this is death to my own self-centeredness. I'm not pushing and promoting myself. I don't have to be in control, no, no. I care about Christ and his body and about my brother and my sister. And, and so I'm dedicated to, to you and to the unity of the body of Christ through the love of God. Um, then p- patience, uh, patience, the next word is a little different. Patience is um, long-suffering with other people. It describes one who puts up with the idiosyncrasies of others. Do you have any idiosyncrasies? <laughs> I don't. Oh, yeah. I stopped one, time, one day and I was stopping thinking, what an odd person I am. No, if, if you put the bundle of likes and dislikes and habits and quirks together and you, you step back and look at yourself, and I'm sure my wife could affirm this, but you just step back and look at yourself, what a, what a, a quirky individual person are you put all of these things together? I'm sure I irritate people sometimes. You know, I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm OCD about some things, not about everything, but about some things. You know, so all of us, there, there are things that even when we're not intending to, we irk other people. Patience, literally long-suffering, is described one who puts up with the idiosyncrasies of others. It's the opposite of short-tempered. It's not being touchy or easily offended. And then the word here... Um, uh, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent is almost too weak a translation. 
striving mightily to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What have we seen about, about the, the, whole, the, 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 uh, the, the Holy Spirit so far? Well, we know we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We know that we have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. We've been told, Paul has prayed, that we'll be both strengthened within, the Holy Spirit works within, um, uh, strengthening us and forming Christ within it. We've been told that we are a dwelling, we've been built up as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's very presence within us. So the unity of the Spirit is the unity that, that the Holy Spirit in the people of God brings, forming us together, bringing us into one body and one unity. With, uh, the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you remember what we've said about, what Paul has already said about peace? You see, Paul is, Paul, when he gets here, he's depending on them remembering what he said there. The peace, remember peace is that wholeness of unity with God, reconciliation to him. And in the body of Christ, there's more than a cessation of conflict or turmoil within. It's a wholeness of life as the community of God in fellowship with him and with one another. A harmony to God. Now this is brought, Christ has provided this peace. And the Holy Spirit infills us. But he says what here? He says, strive diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're supposed to work at it. We have it, but God gives it to us. We don't create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that reconciliation. We don't create it, but we can wreck it. You know, we can mess it up. How do you mess it up? Well, by not, by not practicing humility and, and meekness. By pushing the, the, the thing that ruins and wrecks the unity of the body of Christ more often than anything else is uncrucified egos. I've got to push myself before. I've got to, you know, oh, I didn't get on her like so-and-so did. I'm, you know, I'm all offended. Or I didn't get, or I've got to be this. And it can be anywhere from leaders on down. Work diligently through humility, through, through humbling yourself before the Lord, through prayer, through being willingness to say I'm sorry and being willingness to forgive. Um, diligently preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, uh, and um, oh, I skipped over the phrase being tolerant or, or putting up with one another in love. Um, making allowance for the other person. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, being a bit obsessive, compulsive, and whatever else you want to call it, anal retentive and everything else. You know, I was, a, I was an adult before I realized that I had attributed motives to other people that they never had. If I had acted like they did, it would probably be why I would have done it, but they weren't like me. You know, and so I'm attributing motives to people, not good motives either, that they really never had. Cut them slack, what Paul's saying. Give people the benefit of the doubt. He's not saying be naive. But open your arms to them. Don't take easy offense. This is, this is found fundamental. This is here at the, the basis of how we are to live together among in the people of God. Um, now, um, so that peace is the work of the Spirit. 
given to the church that its maintenance be diligently pursued through humility, meekness, patience, through calling on God for that grace to put up with one another. Put it in short, by letting Christ crucify our egos, by taking up our cross and following him, by letting him become central in our lives, giving up our own um, um, strong desire to, to, to be put above other people and to be dominant. Um, this is, this is um, the expression of love that Paul has, has mentioned so often, the love of God in Christ into which he prayed that we would be rooted and grounded. Now, the source of this unity is not just a nice feeling. Be on your outline, the source of the unity in verses four and five. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you're called in one hope of your calling. What's the one body? The body of Christ. Paul's been talking about how what Christ has done, he's brought the nations and the people of God together in one new person, one new being, one new body, the body of Christ and made peace with them and reconciled them to God through that. One body, all of us who are in Christ, one body, the body of Christ. Friends, let me tell you one thing. The body of Christ is to define who you and I are. You know, I'm not defined by my last name. I'm not defined by my family, ultimately. I'm not defined by my nationality. You know, I live in the South. You know, everybody talks about you gotta be a Southerner down and all that, you know, all kind of. I'm not defined by having been born in Virginia. I'm not, uh, the thing that defines me and you now and one new person in Christ is that we are members of the body of Christ. We're joined to him. And there's one spirit. We've already talked about what Paul has said about the spirit. The Holy Spirit is we are sealed with the Holy Spirit into the day of redemption. He is God's presence among us, the foretaste of all that is to come. It is through him that you and I right now have access directly to God the Father in heaven. Of course, through the work of Christ, but it's through the Holy Spirit. He is the one who forms Christ within. He is God present with us. And it is the same Holy Spirit who is present in you and in me and in a unique way collectively in all of the people of God. One body and one spirit. For you're called in one hope of your calling. Did you know that? Every one of us is called to participate in all of these privileges in Christ that he's been talking about. Every one of us is called to be holy. Every one of us is called to and given the privilege of being a child of God united with him, called to a dwelling place in the spirit. And every one of us is ultimately called to the eternal inheritance with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. One calling, one hope of your calling, assured hope, now it's not a hope for thing. All of you are looking for the same thing. And friends, you, is the more I've studied Ephesians, the more I realize this. We attain it individual. Christianity is very personal, but it's not individual. Of course, you attain the blessing by your own faithfulness and living as part of the body of Christ. But that is so enriched by the rest of the body of Christ. We attain this blessing together 
in the body of Christ. It's part of the body of Christ. One, 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 one body, one spirit, one hope of your, uh, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. Who is that? Jesus Christ is the Lord. One Lord. One faith. We're trusting only in him. Faith can be subjective, our trust in him, our dependence upon him. But faith also has content. We believe in him, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the Father, fully God and fully human, second person of the blessed Trinity. One faith that joins us together, one baptism. And I don't hear baptism talked about in camp meeting very often. I was glad to hear it in some of the messages recently. It's vitally important. Um, in our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an add-on. It's not an additional. It's not a flurry. It is, a, it is the seal and mark of your conversion, and it is a means of grace. It's not merely what I do as a witness. It is a means of grace. When entered into a, in, in faith, God imparts grace to the lives of his people. One, one, um, one baptism, and finally, summing it up, What's the final mark of unity? One what? One God and Father. Father, do you realize how many times Paul has used the word Father in Ephesians up to now? He can hardly say the word God without saying the word Father because he's been made our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Father is one who disciplines. He has authority. But I hope you get, we don't just take this because we've said it so many times. Yeah, God, God the Father, we repeat it in the creed, church, and so forth. It is, very, by the way, the first statement of the, of the creed. I believe in God the Father before you ever get to the maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> because he's been made our Father, we have an intimate relation, obedient relationship with him. Um, one God and Father of all Overall, through all, in all, he's in every circumstance of life. He's there. He pervades everything. He's not panth it's not pantheism. He's not in things in that way. But he is in everywhere. His, his power is manifest. He's in every circumstance of life. Here he is, one in God and Father of us all. Overall and through all and in all. Um, so here is then, that is the, the, the basis of our unity. Then Paul begins with, Two on your outline, the diverse ministries. I'm not sure I should have divided it like this because the ministries are part of the unity. This is not some, it's not okay. Oh, over here we're together. Over here we're going to talk about unity. Over here we're going to talk about diversity. No, the diversity is part of the unity because it, our unity, you understand, is not uniformity. God is not the God of uniformity. He doesn't, just look at this world around here how vast and varied, how harmonious, how it fits together. And the same is true in the people of God. It doesn't mean, of course, there are certain things that every Christian must do. There are, there are moral standards. I'm not saying you can do whatever you want to do. Don't misunderstand me. But God incorporates all kinds into the body of Christ. And he brings, and he uses all kinds. It is a unit, it's no mistake that the imagery is a body with functioning parts. Paul talks about that in Corinthians more, more clearly, but there's a, there's a uniformity. This diversity then is part of the unity and given in order that that unity might flourish. It's not merely a passive unity. 
It is the unity of a growing organism, of the body of Christ. And it depends, Christ is its source, of course, but it depends upon the contribution of each and every member. Did you get that? It doesn't say it depends on the contribution of some members. It depends on the contribution of the preachers and the board members and Sunday school teachers and some other people like that, but not the rest of us, no. It depends upon the contribution of every member. Christ is the source of this reconciliation, but he's also the one who gives, it's through him that he gives the gifts, the source of various gifts given to each member. But to each one of us, verse 7, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's according as, it's, it is purely the gift of Christ. We can talk about them being from the Spirit as well. Um, but it's for each one of us. Now these gifts most definitively are not for self-glorification. Whatever gifts God has given you and has given me, it's not to draw attention to you and it's not to draw attention to me. That's absolutely a contrary and that is a perversion of whatever gifts, to do that, of whatever gifts God has given us. It's not for self, but it's for building up the entire body of Christ. Um, he, he who is the source of life is the source of these gifts and given according to the measure of the extent as Christ wants each one to give. He provides for the well-being of his church. Now, um, we've got a lot of verses today and I need to move fairly quickly, but I don't want to go superficially. Let me check. Oh, I'm wrong. Um, verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The quotation is from Psalm 68. And in the Psalm, it talks about the Lord God of Israel triumphing over his enemies and ascending to his resting place. And as the sign of their homage, they give gifts to him. With Christ, there's something much better. In his incarnation, coming lower than all things, and ascension, this is not about his ascending into hell, but his becoming a human being and his ascension back into heaven, he conquered all the forces of powers of evil all that we have been, all that, that opposed us. He led captivity captive. Whoops. That coffee cup has some coffee and I thought I better set it up. Um, he led captivity captive. What captivity? The captivity that bound you and me. The captivity that bound people in sin. That addiction to sin, that addiction to our self-centeredness and all of its implications. He took that, he led captivity captive. And he gives gifts to human beings, to his people. The gift of free salvation we've been, we've been talking about. And so here, Christ himself, these gifts, the gift of salvation and these other gifts of serving in the church, he's given them. He led captivity captive. He overcame evil and he's given these gifts for the benefit of the church. What's he given? He ascended on high. He's, 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 he's now the all, fills the all in all place of all authority and what gifts did he give? Well, first of all, apostles, then prophets, then pastors, uh, evangelists, oops, 
I, I see my evangelist back there. I, I, wonder, I better not leave out the word evangelist, had I? That would be really serious. It would be. Pastors and teachers. Um, um, I think it's, some people talk about the five-fold ministry and go stuff based on, I think that's being a bit literalistic here. I don't think Paul, I think Paul's trying to cover all the bases. I'm not sure he's trying to give us a definitive list, but he does cover all the bases. Apostles, of course, there are no apostles today. Apostles were appointed by Christ and sent by him, uh, but they were quite essential in the, in the early church because they, they, are, they work, as I've talked before, said before here, they were Christ's representatives. They were the ones he sent to both define the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and lead people in, into belief and faith in Christ. We now have their testimony in the, in the Holy Scripture, in, in the, the words of the New, in, in the New Testament. That is the apostolic tradition handed down to us. Many Christians, early Christians included, also believe that the bishops of the church received that authority from him to define and to lead, to lead the church. But we have that authority we know in, in, in Holy Scripture. They were very essential as part of the, the we've seen that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Prophets are those people in the early church and, and not just necessarily in the early church, but um, through whom God would, would give his guidance to the people of God, through whom he would reveal nothing contrary to the apostolic tradition, nothing contrary to the New Testament. No, no, couldn't be that. They also understood that gospel and helped God's people to understand it and would have God's, a, a word of God for a particular situation. You know, when Paul in Corinthians, when he goes there, he says, when one of the prophets speak, let others be silent and let them judge. Other spirit-anointed people judge. You know, this gift of prophecy is not a solo, any more than any other gift of the Spirit. It's not a solo event that, okay, now you all don't know anything, but I can tell you, and this is what it's got to be. No, no, no. That's self-glorification, self-exalting. Um, it's, it's, it is, contributes to the body of Christ and is evaluated and judged and subject to the body of Christ. Pastors, um, uh, evangelists, those particularly gifted, for the spreading of the word of God and leading people to conversion, leading people to Christ. You know, every one of us are called to be a witness. I, I, I diligently, I try to be a witness intentionally to my neighbors, to the people I, I, work, I work with, to the people who, who um, work on my car in every, in every situation I can. And of course, a witness when I preach and teach and other things. But an evangelist is one who is specifically gifted to bring people to Christ, to proclaim the message, to bring them, 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 them to Christ. And, um, and very important in the church. Pastors and teachers tend to go together. The pastor, the, the idea here is the one who gives, who, um, let me put it this way. I have a doctor friend. Well, some of you may know him. He's very prominent at Sebring Camp, Dr. Ed Mitchell. And whenever I see him, Within the first 30 to 60 seconds, I feel like he's evaluated my health. He's looked at me and determined, what, you know, what the current state of my, my situation is. And a pastor is one who has the gift and hopefully is trained to do that with people. Not to manipulate, not to shove them around, not to get them to do what he wants them to do but to look at them and with, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his training 
to try to sense where they are and to do what he can to lead them where they need to be. And that, of course, is tied in with teaching. The two are together because you don't lead people without teaching the Word of God. Teachers then, ones who are gifted in, in explaining and, and the, the Word of God. So all aspects of the church are, co- are, 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 are covered here. But Paul, the main point is Paul says God's given all of these, um, um, all of these, let me get down here to where it means, I'm way behind myself. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the, I've got service in your translation, but the work of ministry is better. For the building up of the body of Christ. All of these gifts, again, they're not for self-glorification. They're for the equipping the saints, that's all of us, the holy people of God, for equipping us to do what? Beg pardon? To serve, to do the work of ministry. It's to equip you to do what God has called you to do in the body of Christ. To help you be where God would want you to be, to do what service he's called you to do to foster the unity and the growth of the body of Christ. Growth both in bringing people into it and growth spiritually within it. For the work of the ministry, for the work of the ministry he's equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. It's a bodybuilding exercise. I'm, I used to, when I was at camp, I used to make an intention, intentionally go out and exercise, walk a good bit and so forth. I haven't been doing it. I've been put into shame by our song evangelist. He's in the room next to me and he goes to the gym every day. You know, and he looks so healthy, but so far it hasn't stimulated me to do anything. But this is spiritual bodybuilding. It is for the healthy growth and maturing of the people of God in love. Um, so what, and what is to be the result of this growth? On your outline, we have one goal, the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Let's look at what it says in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Um, now, this is so emphatic here. It's a, until we all attain, very, very emphatically stated, until we, not until part of us attain, not until there's some superheroes in the church, but until we all attain um, to the unity of the faith, What's the unity of the faith? Well, it's, it, it, it is a unity expressed in the creed. I'm very much a creedal Christian. I believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe with all of my heart in the in Nicene Chalcedonian Creed. I'm afraid for my poor wife because when I'm in a service where they are repeated, I stand up as straight as I can and say them too loudly because I want, and my poor wife is embarrassed. I try to restrain myself. But I want everybody to know that I do believe. I'm not just saying these words. It's not just a tradition. It's not just a sing-song. I do believe. There is a unity of the faith in turning of believing who Jesus is. There is a unity of the faith, though, also subjectively in our complete trust and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Till we come to that mature unity of the faith, that depth of trust and commitment in Him, that and then the second, of course, and, and, and the, uh, the, the unity of the faith, and it's also the unity of the knowledge of, uh, of, of, of Christ. 
a deeper understanding of who he is and what he has done. Factual understanding of the facts, but a spiritual understanding of them. So this is what we are, all, all of this in the body of Christ, this unity then is till we attain to that unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, since this is talking about growth, I guess the translation mature man is okay. I basically use the NASB in most of these translations, but sometimes I alter it a little bit. But... Um, Actually, it, it could be, and in others, is translated the perfect man or the perfect person. Now, that, we're scared away from that, and we should be. The word perfect in English is pretty strong. Um, um, but um, there is a perfection. You know, there is a perfection of a baby when a baby is all that a baby is supposed to be. Perfection of a child, a perfection in each stage of life when you're whole and are what you're supposed to be. But here, this is what we are supposed to be in Christ. Till we all attain to this perfect, this complete, maybe that's where it helps us better, this complete person in Christ. And, and what does it mean to be complete? Well, he says, the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Oh, Lord. I can't be Jesus, can I? Well, not exactly. But Jesus can be so real in you that he shines through you. And, you know, we're in danger of attributing this just as an ideal up here. And when we do, it can almost become a meaningless ideal. But it can be a reality in your and my life. It's a reality that is both attained and to be attained. There's a degree to which, as I'm walking with the Lord now and all of you, we are, Christ is in us. There is the measure of the statue of fullness of Christ. We have that at a certain place, at a certain level where we are, but it's also something for us to grow into. Now, um, as I've been meditating on these verses, I've really come to feel like I've been dealing with this individually, like you are going to be the perfect man and it measures up to the statue of the fullness of Christ. But I think there's something more to this here. Because, you know, it begins by all of us, uh, all of us attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I think, and Paul can talk about the church itself as the new man, making one new person, he says back there, in Christ. I'm not so sure, but what he's emphasizing here is that the, the perfect man, the perfect person here, um, we could say person here. The Greek word is actually the word for man here, not for, for person. But, um, but the perfect, but the idea is person. The measure of the statue of fullness of Christ. I also think that Paul is probably thinking of that as something that we attain together. That the whole church together as the body of Christ is to attain to the perfect being the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. That together, our witness in the world as they see the body of Christ and how Christ is reflected in us as a body, as a people. We, we have put all too little emphasis on that, our friends. We've talked about our own witness. But what did Jesus say? By this, everybody will know you're my disciples, that you love one another by the way you live together. The witness of the people of God 
is to be embodied in the way we live together, in the different kind of life community we have. And the Bible keeps bringing us back to this over and over again. And every time it does, it breaks my heart. And I suspect it breaks some of your hearts too because the church falls so, so far short of this so often. But to the measure, I, so there is a unity of the people of God to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Um, restoring us individually to all that God intended for us to be, but making us collectively as, as the body of Christ, that full expression of him. This is, now what's the result of this? How will this be manifest? Um, in verse 14, in order that we might no longer be immature, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Stability in Christ is one of the results of it. On the, in, the, in the ancient church, there were plenty of false teaching. People denied the deity of Jesus. They denied the goodness of the world. Some of them denied that the God of the Old Testament was the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were all kinds of false teachings that had to be uh, combated. Um, uh, and denying that Jesus became truly human, that he was, or that he was truly God, all of these kind of things. Um, um, People have false teachings today. They use them to deceive others, to glorify themselves, to establish a following, to make money. There are all sorts of false teachings uh, around in, in our world today. Um, they appeal to selfish motives. And if you'll only send me money and have enough faith, God will make you rich. Everyone is just good. We just need a little tweaking. Keep a positive attitude and all be well. That's all that's needed. Um, if I can unravel the mysteries of prophecy, I will be in the know. Um, all of us sin, so Jesus will just forgive us. It's not a big idea, deal. I've heard that over and over again. That's as false and damnable a teaching as you can find. Um, we need to bring people into the church, get them baptized as soon as they say they believe whether their lives are changed or not. Um, very, very, very false teaching. Um, let's, um, let's adjust the, the biblical standards are cult, of, of sexual conduct. They're just culturally determined. So let's just adjust them to, 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 the contempt, to our superior knowledge today. We don't have to follow all those teachings on sex, sexuality. And we'll get more people in the church. Or love requires us to accept everyone just as they are. That's okay. Except just as they are and to let them stay that way. It doesn't matter what you believe, just come on, join in with us. We'll all get along together. All of these and other contemporary errors appeal to our sinfulness, to our self-centeredness, uh, to our desires, or, you know, to stay, to not be confronted with the gospel of Christ. Um, all of them are used by people to gain a following, build a big church, or to get rich. Sometimes in evangelical churches, even in evangelical denominations, these things are taking place. The contemporary church is full of it. We are in dire need of that spiritual maturity rooted in Christ that keeps us stable. And we're gonna need it, friends, more than anything in light of, 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 the, of the, um, the sexual teachings that are, that are becoming so prominent and so politically correct. Do you realize how great the pressure is uh, I was just told the other day that one of the very con one of the conservative professors at the, at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary 
the one who's written the definitive work on the biblical understanding of sexuality, defending, uh, defending a, biblical, a biblical understanding, has been let go from the seminary. My own seminary, where I got my PhD, none of the professors that taught me would have put up with this, but it's glorifying in its publications. Uh, a, young, a young lady, an alumnus graduate who has now changed her sex from female to male. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada voted seven to two. Trinity Western University started a law school and several of the bar associations in the provinces refused to accept any graduate because of the, the university's stand on sexuality. The Supreme Court voted of Canada seven to two upholding the bar associations. And the two said nothing about religious liberty. The pressure, the pressure within churches, the pressure within denominations, when um, such people who had an evangelical reputation as Adam Hamilton come out supporting this kind of thing, um, with all, and with all the kind of the drivel argument that goes along with it, the pressure is, is great on us to be moved. It's spiritual maturity grounding in Christ and in the body of Christ that can keep us steady and keep us firm. Um, but I want to get to the opposite here. I, 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 I'm, verse 15 is so good, but it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now the word speaking is not really there. It's okay. I mean, it's kind of a, I'm not saying it's a totally wrong translation, but it's, it's a little bit inadequate. It's truthing in love is what it is. And it's more than just the words you say. This is so fundamental to our life in Christ, friends, so absolutely essential, being truthful in everything, in our speech, in our actions, being truthful with ourselves before God. Other places the Bible calls this repentance. It's not justifying yourself. It's not covering up yourself. It's not making excuses for your disobedience and covering them up. It's being truthful to the core. That's hard for us human beings to do. Maybe none of us are ever quite truthful about ourselves. There's always things in ourselves that other people may see that we don't, yes, or maybe even other people don't see them, but God does. But uh, this is so, it's the opposite of this is to be absolutely truthful with myself and with others, not, not to, to justify my own or sinful anywhere, to be truthful in the Lord because God is truth and all truth will come out in the judgment. But it's being, speaking the truth, being truthful, how? In love. Now that doesn't mean I'm gonna condone somebody when they're doing sin, when they're sinful, that's not loving. That's letting them go to hell. It's certainly not loving. But it does condition the way I speak, when I speak, how I speak. I speak in order to win. It may be in order to win this person. I may have to speak when I know I'm not going to win them, but if I don't speak, other people are going to be corrupted by what they're saying and doing. Speaking the truth in love. You know, this, you can root this all the way back in St. Augustine. St. Augustine, in interpreting Scripture, gives us two fundamental rules. After you've interpreted, do all you can to interpret it legitimately, but then if you can't quite understand it, there's amb ambiguity. First of all was the rule of faith. Don't interpret anything contrary to the creedal faith, to the basic faith of the Christian church. Stick with the truth. And the other is the rule of love. And that doesn't mean namby-pamby. 
It means everything I do, every time I stand up here, any preacher stands up here, every time we proclaim the word of God, its purpose is to be for bringing people to Christ and for the edification of the body of Christ. That's in love. That's what we do that because we, we are to love you. So speaking the truth in love then, that is so essential. Um, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. As members of the body minister to one another in the way Paul has said, we grow in our knowledge of the Lord and in what he's done for us in love. Um, from whom the whole body being fitted, this is from Christ, being fitted and held together. Christ is the one who's fitting, but it's by what every joint supplies, every, we're the joints, here we're called joints. I don't, okay, that's okay, I'll be an elbow. It's all right. Every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself again in love. Christ is the beloved. We are called to love, to be the holy people of God who express his love in the body of Christ. Friends, this fundamental unity of the body of Christ, our living together, our being built up together, and being a witness together in Christ, Paul puts it here at the very first part of his practical instruction because it's the foundation on which everything else is laid. Let's pray. Father, when we read this marvelous passage and see all of your great provision for us and how that is to be put into fact, how you want to put this into place in the body of Christ by your spirit and by the reconciliation of, the, of Christ that brings us together. We're made so conscious of our failures. Lord, our one prayer is that you will help us to give all diligence to preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not by compromising doctrine or teaching, but by speaking the truth in love and by a genuine concern for one another that we might all grow individually and as a body into the measure of the statue of the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that the world may see and know Christ in us because we love one another in a way that they don't see any place else. In Jesus' name, amen.